Hello, friend. Nice to have you here as always. Welcome back to the year that was 1984. I have got an insane array of new music releases to talk you through that came out in January and February of that legendary year. When I say insane, I mean there's lots of remarkable stuff, lots of great stuff that came out. But friends, I've also got an insane array of new music from those two months to share with you. And I mean insane in the sense of batshit crazy. Can you name the artist? I mean, big artist, big hit songs in the 70s and the 80s who released this song right here? This was a single. It goes on like this. But there is way more than that. Come for the crazy stay for the song and the band that gave the burgeoning thrash metal genre its name. What was described as, quote, one of Ted Nugent's most underwhelming releases. A 60s hippie icon goes synth pop. There is a rejected Michael Jackson single and so much more. All you need to do is visit my Patreon. If you're a member, you're all set. The show is already there waiting for you. If you are not yet a member, this is a terrific time to get a seven day free trial to enjoy everything I've got up there, including the best of the rest of new music, January, February 1984. Looking forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. And now, with no further ado. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, oh, An above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California. Boasting a partially obstructed, rain-obscured view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Gonna break it down a little bit. All right. Here at long last to finally bring us one final step from perfect synchronicity. This is the show that will make it so the next time I do this show, we'll finally be lined up. The next time I do a Tully show, it will be in March of 19, uh, 2024. I'll be talking about the music from March of 1984, the way these things were always supposed to line up. That's but one of many exciting developments here with the Tully show which is at least what it's called for now. Let me put it this way, folks. I should probably put this out there. If you are subscribed to the show, thank you very much. Keep doing what you're doing. If you're not subscribed to the show, but you want to keep listening to the show, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you. If you haven't rated and reviewed, that'd be great. Uh, all that stuff. But but subscribe to the show because I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty darned sure that... At some point, it could be the next time there is an episode of this show and it comes up, it, it might well have a different name. I think it'll still have my face associated with it, so you probably won't have any trouble figuring out what show it is. But to avoid any confusion and to continue um, enjoying and joining me on our journey through some of the greatest music of all time in granular granular month-by-month basis, uh, fashion... 
we're going to be doing a lot more of what we've been doing here, a lot of different uh, ways, and I'm excited to have you along with me. Um, so, so make sure you're subscribed, and and if you are already subscribed, if you see a show that looks very much like the Tully Show but isn't exactly the same as the Tully Show in the not too distant future, listen to that one too. I would appreciate it. In the here and now, this might be. Oh my goodness, is this the final Tully Show as the Tully Show? I'm going to operate on the assumption that it is. It changes absolutely nothing, but that kind of just hit me. All right, cool. Well, I'm glad, I'm happy for whatever uh, difference it makes that it is a whopper of a show. I, I most definitely could have and probably should have split the new music from January and February of 1984 over two separate shows. I did not do so because I'm so tired of being out of whack and I want to get caught up with uh, the months of 1984, but also more practically, if I can let you behind the curtain, my parents are coming to town next week and it's not their fault, but I'm not going to get a damn thing done while they're here. So if I didn't do this now, I was going to have to wait uh, like two weeks to do the, the February music. So, um, my, my, my professional loss of time is your podcast listening gain, because as a result, we've just got an insane amount of incredibly remarkable music to talk about. And we will start doing that momentarily real quick to breeze through the larger events happening in the music world outside of music releases in the first two months of 1984 um brad whitford and more importantly i guess joe perry rejoin aerosmith everybody went their separate ways they needed some time apart to learn some valuable life lessons do some more drugs quit doing some drugs and then reform um shortly thereafter they're going to make the i think it's the done with mirrors album which is uh, a return to form. They kind of like restake their place as a functional rock band that can put out listenable music and show up and do tour dates as in the original lineup formation, but really more importantly sets the stage for the incredibly massive permanent vacation album and the even more massive pump album and um, sets the stage for Aerosmith to not only regain its former glory, but to frankly, I think become even bigger than they were in their original seventies. Heyday. Uh, in late January of 84, Michael Jackson has that unfortunate accident on the set of uh, the Pepsi commercial where, you know, fire burns his scalp. We all heard about it. We all heard the jokes about it. We also, it was parody versions in music videos. It was, it was big news and it was, it was probably the craziest thing that happened to Michael Jackson in, uh, in early 1984, but it had some competition as you were about to hear about, about midway through the show when we get to, uh, his little cameo appearance in the new music from, um, from this little period of time. And also, uh, we are in the midst of a gay panic here over the lyrics to the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, Relax, which I was, personally, I was seven years old. If you pinned me down to the extent that I was thinking about it, I probably would have told you that the song was like, hey man, we're all super stressed, you know, sometimes you just got to chill out, man. Um, more discerning ears who had, who were, that were attached to more discerning eyes would have noticed that um, the song was pretty overtly about uh, the the critical moment of sexual intercourse, at least from the male perspective, 
while if you saw although i don't think the the song i don't recall it making clear in any way that it was specifically about gay sex if you saw the music video it made it pretty clear that these guys were not banging a bunch of chicks backstage after the concert so the combination of those two things of course it was a total double standard there were there was no shortage of of, of music with overt sexual uh heterosexual messaging on MTV and getting played on the radio in those days probably probably applies to half the songs we're about to talk about on the show today but this was something a little different won't somebody think of the children and a bunch of DJs most prominently a DJ for BBC Radio 1 which was is now and was especially then like the only game in town for pop radio in Frankie Goes to Hollywood's native nation of the UK um, a DJ by the name of Mike Reed took a stand and announced he would no longer put needle to wax on the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, at least not on his show. And as is so often the case, trying to ban the music did not um, make it go away. It only fanned the flames of its popularity. Let's move on and let's talk about um, the final, well, the first posthumous release from John Lennon. So we all know we've talked about this in any number of ways since I've been doing this this show. John Lennon had been had been shot and killed a couple of years beforehand, and uh, there's already been one posthumous album. He was already working on the follow up to the 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 Plastic Ono Band, Double Fantasy, I think is the album that came out after he passed away. As we know, when when he was shot by Mark David Chapman, he literally had like a tin of of tape from the recording studio uh, under his arm, and uh his his widow Yoko Ono um collaborated with I think it was David Geffen was the the head of the label that John Lennon was on at the time that he passed and um and assembled an album made of somewhat out of the unfinished songs that John Lennon had been working on up to and including the night of his death of course by the end, now Yoko Ono had been had been uh, in in some way, shape, or form a collaborator on everything John Lennon had been doing ever since she made her way into his inner sanctum. But at the time of his death, they were literally billed as a music duo, like Ike and Tina, like Sonny and Cher. These albums were attributed to John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And if you are a person who sometimes lacks a little bit in self-confidence. I just may you someday here here's my wish for you. May you someday have half the balls of Yoko Ono because this chick if ever there was a time to go this is not about me. This is about my husband. Arguably the most important figure in the history of popular music. Maybe not, but arguably he's, 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 he's one of them for sure. And he's the one that got shot and killed. And come to think of it, people do seem to react a little better when we play shows, when he does his songs, than when we do mine. Maybe it's time for me to cede the spotlight to him. No. The album was a mixture of songs that John had been working on and a bunch of stuff that Yoko made. Indeed. The B-side to the lead single of John Lennon's final album, his final artistic statement was, let me play it for you, was a solo song from Yoko Ono entitled, Oh Sanity. Oh Sanity, what am I to do with you? Drink up, shoot up. 
Wow. Yeah. It gets, it gets better and better as you go. You know, it's so, it's so crazy because people criticized Paul and, and quite rightly for, you know, Paul did not want to spend a night apart from Linda McCartney and man, what kind of rock and roller, what kind of dude, what kind of man lets his chick be in his band? She's on there on stage with wings and she's smiling like an idiot and banging on a keyboard and you can't really tell if it's plugged in. And then there's that, you know, if you've never heard it, uh, go find the audio of, some uh, malicious sound engineer who released a live mix of Hey Jude with uh, everybody else's vocals, vocals turned way down and Linda's pumped all the way up. Like, it's just like if it's like a make a wish kid on stage. It was a pretty uh, not great look for Paul McCartney to let his wife be in the band. And yet what he did was was dignified in comparison between to the uh, compared to the way that John Lennon uh, let Yoko Ono infiltrate his his uh, not just his life but his art right up until the very end but right up until the very end it's really been an education for me to to hear this and to see this right up until the very end the very end John Lennon was making music that was that that was a, a a worthwhile addition to his body of work. You know, we all say nice things when people pass away, um, but very very often when an artist you know um, passes, we feel inclined to to say things or co-sign things like, oh, they had so much more music to give. And very often it's like, well, no, they kind of had their run and they had none of their albums for the last 10 or 15 years really measured up to the truly great stuff. Like I'm not going to say that and be a dick, but they didn't have a whole lot. To, it sucks personally. It sucks for them that they died. It sucks. You know, we'll never get to see them perform live. I'm sure their family and friends are bummed out about it, but they, 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 they had kind of made their greatest music. John Lennon who knows how many more great songs the guy had to make because he was still making great stuff literally on the day he died as evidenced by the lead single of um, his his final album his first posthumous release off of Milk and Honey here is uh, a um, refreshingly Yoko free John As we know, tragedy looms in the not-too-distant future for Freddie Mercury and Queen at this point as well. Uh, one year later, they'd have their triumphant performance at Live Aid, but within three years, Freddie Mercury would announce to the world that he was HIV positive and indeed had contracted AIDS. He announced that one day before AIDS claimed his life. But right here in January of 1984, the band is transitioning really nicely into a new decade. You know, we talk about all their other uh, classic rock brethren struggling to uh, to transition and to to still sound relevant to a new batch of children. Uh, John Lennon obviously pulled it off with style, and um, Queen managed to do so yet again with the album The Works. It sold six million copies. Ironically enough, the the lead single, arguably the most significant track from the song, was a shot 
overtly at the MTV generation where uh, the, the band is, is clearly expressing the sentiment that music, the songs we heard on the radio really used to mean something. And now all we hear is, well, uh, drummer Roger Taylor had young children. He had a three-year-old kid who he overheard using the phrase radio caca. And Roger Taylor is like, now there's an idea. He locked himself in a studio with a drum machine and a keyboard. He cleaned up the the three-year-old's potty mouth ever so slightly and uh, quickly produced this big hit song. means to segue from that multi-platinum release from Queen into the next gigantic album I want to talk to you about. I want to quickly touch on a project that, frankly, I didn't notice by name when we were talking about new stuff that came out in November of 1983. I brushed right over this little EP that was uh, recorded by a a project billed as Brian May and friends. Brian May, of course, the guitar player of Queen. So Roger Taylor is inspired to write Radio Gaga by something his three-year-old toddler says. Brian May is inspired to make what ends up being a mini album because of the TV he's watching with his four-year-old, specifically uh, Brian May's son, Jimmy, was a fan of a show called Starfleet. That's the English title of a Japanese sci-fi puppet show, like a a marionette sci-fi thing. It's called X-Bomber in Japanese. It's called Starfleet in English. And uh, Brian May is just like, that was our thing. Queen wasn't was on a little bit of a hiatus between touring and uh, and making albums. And my son's obsessed with this. And every morning he's dragging me out of bed to watch it together. And I, I as a dad, I, I totally relate to this. He's like, I just music starts going through my head because of this dumb Japanese puppet show that we're watching. And so he just he, he gets a tune in his head and. He's like, Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen lived down the street and Van Halen was on a break. And this guy from like REO Speedwagon was my next door neighbor and he was available. So everybody just kind of came by and this thing happened and it was kind of a misfit toy. Didn't really have an intended audience. It was too long to be uh, an EP, was too short to be an album. So the thing kind of got dumped unceremoniously. But I I was not aware of this. Did you know Brian May made an album with Eddie Flippin' Van Halen? They did. And uh, the project, the album's called Starfleet, and it's the same name as the lead single. Let's take a quick listen to that. Well, I'm sure Brian May's son really, really liked that song, and I guess that's really the only thing that matters here. Moving on in uh, in January, on January 9th of 1984, to be very specific, Van Halen released their sixth studio album. It was notably their last studio album that really matters from the classic era with original lead singer David Lee Roth. It was also, uh, alongside their debut, their most successful, both their first and last album with David Lee Roth. 
each sold 10 million copies. The album they released in 1984, as you might well know, was released 1984. Why was this one so much bigger than the, the all the albums in the middle? According to um, their longtime producer, Ted Templeman, the answer was very straightforward because Eddie Van Halen started using synthesizer keyboards on a bunch of tracks. And as big as rock and roll was, you know, the real money was in pop. And that's what opened this band up to the mainstream pop audience, bridged the gap between the rock and pop audience. Indeed, the signature song from this album went number one on the pop charts. The keyboard riff is something that Eddie Van Halen had come up with a year or so earlier. The band, you know, it's amazing how many gigantic successful songs have a similar story. The rest of the band was like, no way, man, that's crap. Who would ever want to do anything with that? But he repitched it to the band and everybody got into it the second time around. Uh, Daryl Hall from Hollow Notes said that Eddie Van Halen once confided to him that this keyboard riff was uh, was largely borrowed from the Hollow Notes song, Kiss is on my list. Daryl Hall said he had no gripe with that, a little bit of borrowing among friends is no big deal in the music biz. Um, as for the the lyrical side of things, I cannot recommend enough David Lee Roth's memoir, the the um, suitably deranged <laughs> Crazy from the Heat, I think it's called. Uh, he tells a story of writing this song that he's watching a thing on the evening news where there's a guy who's threatening to commit suicide and leap off a skyscraper and there's a crowd watching him from the ground and David Lee Roth is like, it's funny, there's always going to be some people going, no, 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 don't do it. And then there's always going to be the one guy who's thinking and might even yell, you might as well jump. If you wanted to point to a moment in time as ground zero for the birth of hair metal in its like final MTV radio ready form, uh, you could do a lot worse than this little area, uh, January, February 1984, as um, the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen leaves the stage, both um, Bon Jovi and Rat release albums that define what it means to be um, a crossover metal act for really the rest of the decade. We'll start with uh, Bon Jovi. So John fortuitously uh, had family members that owned a recording studio. So you can go and find this stuff online. There's he, he was he was very at home in a recording studio and was able to um, to work and work on and workshop a lot of songs for a lot of years. You know, that was a really studio time was a really hard thing to to come by for most struggling musicians. We talked last time around, I think, about you know, Slayer having to borrow money from their parents to be able to get a couple of hours overnight in some studio. John Bon Jovi not only had access to a studio at times, you know, in off hours, he also had access to some studio musicians. And it was with some studio musicians that he um, recorded a track that uh, like won some some local talent shows and talent contests and got him a little bit of local radio play. And um, that's what got him the major label deal. And then 
then he he uh, formed the Bon Jovi band as it would come to be known. And the song that got him the deal was also the song that won him uh, him national fame. The first uh, truly great Bon Jovi song off their self-titled album. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the nation, in February of 1984, Rat becomes the next big band to pop out of the Sunset Strip hair metal scene. Now, the the seeds of success had been sown for that scene several years earlier. My God, there's a lot of S's in that sentence. Uh, In the late 70s, there's already bands running around uh, struggling to play a couple of chords with teased hair, attracting uh, crowds of horny teenagers. But here in 84, the scene has matured. It's it, A couple years later, it's just going to be an absolute feeding frenzy. Uh, every other band getting a major label deal. Um, but in, in February of 1984, it is Rat's Time to Shine. Their debut album would be their biggest album. It's their second consecutive release to feature Tawny Katane on the cover, the first lady of hair metal. Uh, she was dating Rat rhythm guitar player Robin Crosby at the time when we talked about Rat's uh, self-released debut EP a couple of months ago. It had Tony uh, Tony's calf, I believe, on the cover. Here we get the full Katane splayed out on the ground, peering down into an eerie light on the cover of uh, the signature Rat album release, Out of the Cellar. Now, I mentioned the the obvious influence of Kiss, Aerosmith, and Van Halen on the hair metal bands that followed in their footsteps. Of course, you could name a bunch of other bands and add them to that list. Black Sabbath, obviously, Led Zeppelin, ACDC. But there's one other one that had way less uh, success than any of the aforementioned, but a number of bands, definitely Nikki Six of Motley Crue, to pick one example, would openly acknowledge that, that his band and his idea of what a band not only should sound like, but should look like, was heavily influenced by David Johansson's band, the New York Dolls. The New York Dolls really did not accomplish much in terms of mainstream success during their two-album run in the 70s, and I'm pretty sure they enjoyed even less success in the UK than they did in their native US. But one, one boy fanned out really, really hard on the New York Dolls over in England, so much so that he became their UK fan club president. I am speaking, you may or may not know this, of Morrissey. Morrissey was pretty much the world's biggest New York Dolls fan. Um, And one day, of course, he would grow up to start a band of his own, and that band could not possibly have been more different from 
a hair metal band to me that is time and time again one of the most gratifying things about doing this show is just hearing this music and understanding it in the context of the other things that were happening at the exact same time the exact same month that john lennon released nobody told me there'll be day like days like these um van halen released jump and rat released round and round and the smiths released their debut self-titled album and uh it did not do much in the mainstream at the time i mean morrissey he did actually have probably a top 20 hit with the more you ignore me the closer i get in um in the mid 90s but he was and remains one of the great, if not the great, indie icons. He was just born to be outside of the mainstream, both as a person and as a musical phenomenon. But a musical phenomenon, he most definitely is, whatever you might think of Morrissey or the music he's made as a solo artist. And with the Smiths, by the time they came along, they were sort of the UK's answer to REM. I don't know, most Americans would not have heard of REM at this time. I don't know even if the Smiths had heard of rem i don't know what sort of impression their first like two albums they would have released at this point made over in the uk but the similarities are actually pretty striking if you think about it musically it's this um this very melancholy jangle pop sort of thing and the front man of each band is like this sexually ambiguous guy with a a voice that you may or may not find off-putting it's very unconventional for a rock singer who's sort of uh, uh, presenting himself as as a poet writing lyrics for a rock band you probably know where you stand on the smiths to some people this guy is like a religion full stop and to other people he's a a jackass and a clown and to many of us myself included he's kind of this weird combination of both but it all starts here in january of 1984 i prefer the later smith stuff personally but for people who were there um their first album was a gigantic statement a gigantic landmark and uh, i was definitely very different from anything else you were hearing at the time um, I could pick any number of songs as representative samples from the debut album of The Smiths, but I have chosen to go with my personal favorite. By 1984, Chrissy Hind seemingly had already lived several lifetimes. I, I didn't really, I know a bunch of different like disparate pieces of her biography. I never really knew how they fit together until I did a teensy bit of homework to talk to you folks today. So Chrissy Hind, like I, for starters, I was never really clear on whether she was American or British. Fundamentally, most simply, the answer to that is that she is American. Chrissy Hind was born and raised in Ohio. She went to Kent State University, and to, to most of it, to, pe- to, uh, to most of us people my age, Kent State is synonymous with the shootings on campus there. And indeed, not only was um, Chrissy actively involved in the anti-war protests that led to those shootings on the campus, her boyfriend 
Chrissy Hines' boyfriend was one of the four students who was fatally shot during the the Kent State shootings. Um, while she was there, she also started a band with uh, with Mark Mothersbaugh, later of Devo. But at a certain point, she realized Ohio was only going to get her so far, and she was interested in you know the the beginnings of the punk rock movement. So she up and moved over to London. Personally, uh, I've told the story many times. Uh, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, told me that uh, Chrissy Hine pierced his ear in a bathroom while they get they got bored watching um, a show by the band The Stranglers. And uh, she's trying to start a band in England. She's trying to start a band in France. She finally gets the Pretenders off the ground. And look, I love I love punk rock. You're you're listening to a guy who just last night forced my kids to watch two songs of the Dead Boys live on stage at CBGBs in 1977. So I, I say this with a lot of affection when I say. Um, Chrissy Hind was one of the fair people, uh, one of the few people to come out of the punk world who's actually talented. Like, I don't know how much vocal training she's had, but she has one of the best and most remarkable and distinctive voices in like the history of pop music. But it took her a second to put it all together. She finally puts together the pretenders. They put out, uh, I think two albums with their original lineup. And if you go and listen to them, I mean, it's Chrissy Hind. It's recognizably her. It's recognizably the pretenders, but the early stuff is a little bit more indebted to the early punk rock sound. Uh, here in 1984, the original band that she has formed is in disarray. The mission seemingly is falling apart. They literally kick one member out of the band for uh, not being able to get his drug issues under control. Like a day or two later, another member of the band dies because of their drug issues. At this point, Chrissy Hind is pregnant. Specifically, she's pregnant with a baby she had with Ray Davis of the Kinks. And it, when all hope objectively seemed like it, it might have been lost, you're down to half a band, the lead singer is pregnant, and you go into a recording studio and you make what I think most Pretenders fans would say was the best Pretenders album. It certainly um, uh, produced the greatest number of signature Pretenders singles, including this classic right here. At this same time, Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac released her first solo album in 14 years, her first solo album since joining Fleetwood Mac. The band was on a hiatus and uh, she just had a couple of songs ready to go and didn't want to wait anymore. And, and she released uh, at least one song that to me is a totally underrated and unjustly forgotten um, hit. It was a top 10 song in, in 1984. You may not have heard it since 1984. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Christine McVie, recently deceased R.I.P., uh, when people talk about 
Fleetwood Mac. It's just so easy for her to get lost in the shuffle because there's, you know, the the power dynamic and the the romantic struggle between um, Lindsay and Stevie Nicks. And Stevie visually, obviously, attracts so much of the attention. And there's all the stories of the drugs and who was sleeping with who at this point in time. And through it all, I just I feel like Christine McVie clearly emerge emerges as as the rock of the band creatively. You know, they've had so many um, unusual songs that sound unlike anybody else. Uh, the Chain comes to mind. But 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 the one of the great strengths of Fleetwood Mac is at the end of the day, they could do weird, exotic stuff. They could do Tusk, but they could also just just kill it with a perfect, simple, straightforward pop song. And when you go through their stuff, you realize the lion's share of the great, straightforward pop stuff that Fleetwood Mac recorded together doesn't matter who was singing christine mcvee wrote it and she had another one of those up her sleeves this is basically like another great fleetwood mac single that i think people just forget about because fleetwood mac didn't record it she put it out on her solo album um if you've never heard it before i think you're gonna like it assuming you like fleetwood mac at all and if you've uh forgotten it get reacquainted with this really great track off of the christine mcvee is a self-titled album Yeah, right. I mean, it's just it's a really good Fleetwood Mac. So I think Lindsey Buckingham even played guitar on that. Um, Christine McVie and uh, her top 10 hit got a hold on me ahead of Christine McVie in the charts somehow, some way. Well, I think I know. I think I know how Um, the next song that we're going to talk about. uh, I was going to resign this to the the best of the rest show. But the fact remains that it was a number two hit. And it prominently features the biggest pop star of uh, of the 1980s, one of the biggest pop stars of all time. Um, that is, uh, I think it's fair to describe Michael Jackson thusly. So here's the story. I kind of sort of remember hearing a version of this story in the 80s. Who knew how these urban legends passed around um, in the, the pre-internet age? But um, what I knew about this song was true, but it was wildly misleading. I am speaking of um, the the single one-hit wonder uh, success from the artist known as Rockwell. So here's what I heard at the time. Rockwell is actually Barry Gordy's son, and Barry Gordy is the founder of Motown, and Barry Gordy wanted to help his son become a big star, so he called in a favor from, you know, Motown legend Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson did a hook on this song, and so and so Barry Gordy's kid got to be a, a pop star, pure Nepo baby. And the reality is that... Bits of that are true. Most importantly, Rockwell was and still is Barry Gordy's kid, but the rest of it is way more convoluted than that. As I understand it, Rockwell, I think his real name is Kennedy Gordy, but it's just going to get confusing if I call him that. So we're just going to call him Rockwell. 
Rockwell had had a falling out with his dad. His dad, Barry Gordy, kicked him out of the house. Rockwell ends up living with the mom, and the mom like gets him a job like writing for a magazine or, or something like that. But he has dreams of music superstardom, and he gets some studio time, and he has this song... And of course, even though he's not on speaking terms with his dad, he knows he knows some people and, and he gets this track on and somebody's like, hey, man, you might really have something there. It's just missing a little something. What is it missing? I don't know. I don't know. And Rockwell's like, I got a great idea. And here's where even if Barry Gordy wasn't directly helping him out, being Barry Gordy's son uh, were, helped uh, Rockwell immensely because the rest of us would have been arrested uh, if we had even attempted to to abduct Michael Jackson, which is exactly what Rockwell did. He went to Michael Jackson's house and he's like, hey, take a ride with me. And Michael Jackson's like, why? And he's like, dude, just get in the car. And Michael Jackson's like, okay. And they go down to the studio. And when they get there, Rockwell's like, hey, man, can you just sing this one line? And Michael Jackson's like, yeah, what the hell do I care? And the result was, I mean, it's effectively a novelty single that features like a passable, a passably decent Michael Jackson hook. And that took it all the way to number two in 1984. In January of 1984, Kenny Loggins reached his zenith as a musical chameleon. He started out way back when, 15 years earlier, with the country act Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and then he was doing the singer-songwriter thing with Loggins and Messina, and then he was one of the true titans of yacht rock, but uh, he became known ultimately, and I think he um, it irked him for a while for his legacy to be limited to this title, but he was known as the king of the movie soundtrack song or something like that. Um, and I think it, it took him a minute to finally realize that uh, it was it was more than faint praise. This guy provided songs that were the soundtracks of our lives, quite literally, in the 1980s. And his biggest, he, he'd already done the song for Caddyshack. He still got the Top Gun stuff in the future, a couple other movies. But the only number one song he ever had as a solo artist was the title track to the soundtrack and the Kevin Bacon movie of the same name. When you think about it, the primary number one function of music probably always has been, above all else, just giving people something to dance to, right? I'm sure there were singer-songwriters with really important, meaningful lyrics who had a lute going way back when. But when it comes down to it, I think what most people um, traditionally have looked for from music was just to give them a couple of notes and a beat so they could, you know, shake their butts and party and celebrate the harvest or, or whatever. So I, I think we tend to think of disco music as having been some sort of new innovation, this like... Um, 
soulless, mindless, new genre. But it's not true. There's always been dance music. You know, the people danced the Charleston or line dancing or square dancing or whatever. Disco was just this really over-the-top form of, of dance music. And um, it got so big that it was sort of like was uh, like Icarus too close to the sun got, got, got too big and became a victim of its own success. And all of a sudden people woke up and felt like it was kind of embarrassing to picture, you know, the, the dance moves that John Travolta did in Saturday Night Fever and the big lapels. So disco needed to go away. But dance music was never going to go anywhere. It just needed to find a new, more palatable form for a new generation of, uh, of, of partiers and, and, and wedding parties and club goers. And here in 1984, a big part of that evolution happened, believe it or not. Um, you probably will remember the song um, by, even if you don't remember the artist, the artist uh, released music under the single name Shannon. But this song is considered a really big piece of the evolution from disco to what would later be in my experience growing up in New Jersey in the eighties, like the siren song of the Guidos. You guys didn't hear about the Guidos until the Jersey shore. I, I, I have commingled with Guidos. I, I went to school with Guidos. I may have made out with a couple of Guidos, and uh, I'm sure they didn't care for the Genesis and Motley Crue records that I was enjoying in the late 80s, but I really did not care for um, artists uh, like Stevie B or Expose. There was a, a particular kind of really cheesy, really tacky kind of dance music that was uh, winning over the hearts and minds of Guidos everywhere in my world in uh, the late 80s and early 90s and the roots of of that style of dance music are um, it, it all heavily indebted to this one really popular top 10 song from the artist shannon that came out way back in February 17th, 1984, Thompson Twins released their fourth studio album. And there's there's this whole wave of British synth pop, usually pretty lightweight bands happening. And although Thompson Twins had other significant songs, uh, Doctor Doctor, Lies Lies, there's probably a couple other that repeated the same word twice in a row. Uh, I think most of that stuff is relatively disposable depending on your personal tastes and inclinations very very lightweight but i think most people would agree thompson twins reached their creative pinnacle with one single on their fourth album in uh, into the gap there's this little movement i'm a big fan of um sophista pop and it's exactly what it sounds like um the song true by spandau ballet is probably the preeminent example of sophista pop but this song i think sits very comfortably alongside it
Another British band, Talk Talk, uh, arguably hit their creative zenith as well at the exact same time as Thompson Twins. This song, believe it or not, it's so funny how this happens. There's there's certain songs I would point out, um, the Christine McVie song I played earlier. There's a very good chance that you have not heard that song in years, despite the fact that it was a top 10 hit. I don't, I don't know who's still listening to Rockwell in this day and age, but uh, this song right here barely cracked the, the top 40. I think the song peaked at number 31 here in the States. And even though uh, radio playlists tended to be more expansive in the 80s than they became later on, uh, I don't know. I don't think there were too many stations that had 31 new songs in regular rotation at any given time. So what that means is this song probably got a decent amount of play in some markets and went totally unheard in others. I'm guessing Los Angeles is one of the places, most uh, probably on um, the world famous K Rock, where this song did get a lot of play because uh, Gwen Stefani, and no doubt, most definitely heard it. They would later cover it to great success. There's two other British pop acts that I think uh, warrant brief mention before we move on to arguably the most important release of January, February 1984. I have a feeling at least a couple of you will uh, wholeheartedly agree with me. First, let's talk about Wang Chung. They would later find greater success with uh, Everybody Have Fun Tonight and that awesome music video where it looked like their heads were wiggling the whole time. But here in, uh, in January of 1984, they had uh, critically just changed their name from Huang Chung to Wang Chung. That was big. And they released an album that had their first uh, single that at least did a little bit of damage here on the U.S. charts. Once again, this is probably a K-Rock uh, favorite. Those guys seem to be playing all the great, all the songs that everybody came to love later on. Seem to have found a home first and uh, primarily on the K Rock airwaves here in Los Angeles. The Philadelphia Inquirer, in um, reviewing the the album, points on the curve, the second studio album by the newly uh, adjusted named Wang Chung, described the band as quote mean spirited fops. I don't know how you get that off this song, but uh, I personally, I kind of like it. We were cool on Christ When I, you, and everyone we knew Could believe, do, sharing what was true I said That's all day's love At the same time, British singer-songwriter Nick Kershaw released his debut album, which yielded the, well, it's it, I would say it's his biggest hit in the States, despite the fact that it wasn't a hit at all. This song completely failed to even crack the top 40 charts. 
And yet, I'm sure they played the crap out of it on K-Rock. I wish we'd all been there. Some of us weren't so lucky. Some of us were listening to Stevie B and Expose on Z100 in New York. But this song, um, I think its popularity and acclaim have uh, slowly grown in the intervening years. It's definitely become a staple of like new wave playlists, etc. I bet... This is not the first time you're going to hear this song. If it is, I think you're going to enjoy Nick Kershaw and Wouldn't It Be Good. So we've come to the end of the rainbow once again, but I I have arguably saved the, well, I I thought about leading the show with Weird Al, but it seemed vaguely disrespectful to John Lennon and his final studio recordings. But uh, I'll put it this way. I've spent a hell of a lot more time listening to the second Weird Al album than, frankly, I've probably spent listening to the Beatles in my entire life, which says more about me than it does about Weird Al or the Beatles. Thank you, folks, as always, for joining me. I will remind you, please subscribe to this show because I think the name is going to change and I want it to continue showing up in your feed. If you see a show show up in your feed in the next couple of weeks, you're like, what the hell is that? Just click on it. It might be me. Um, and I will remind you before I go, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. It is going to be a it's going to be a shit show over there, guys. There is some truly weird stuff and some truly good stuff that we need to discuss the best of the rest of January, February 1984. But before I bid you adieu, I think I think I think uh, hardcore Al heads, which I guess I sort of consider myself one of um, would agree that this is uh, this is the first fully formed Weird Al album. Um, I, I wasn't around for once again, I, I didn't have K-Rock and I didn't have Dr. Demento and I'm sure I would have laughed my six-year-old ass off if I had heard, um, another one rides the bus with just like the armpit fart noises. But, you know, the early recordings were definitely very primitive and, um, and uh, record like literally recorded in one take in a bathroom. And then even when Weird Al put out the first album, he didn't quite know what he had, what he was capable of. He leaned really heavily on the accordion stuff and some of the song parodies the accordion helped with. And as he realized by his second album, a lot of times, you know, a little accordion goes a long way. Uh, and 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 that sometimes just doing an incredibly faithful um, reinterpretation of an existing song really accentuates the humor. Of course, by this point, um, you know, MTV is in full flower and that format is perfect for an artist like Al. So not only is he making faithful audio recreations of the songs, he also made a memorably faithful video recreation of the Michael Jackson smash song on which the Weird Al parody was based. I leave you with Eat It. I'll see you at the Patreon, or I will see you here soon. Thanks, folks. Till you clean off your plate, so eat it. Don't you tell me you're full, just eat it.